again, uh, after I hear those words uh, about God's grace for me, um, I, I just have to respond. So please join me again to sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, you heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So about a year ago, I started working for a group, I think I mentioned this last week, a nonprofit group that believes that conflict, the messiest kinds of conflicts we can think of, are disagreements about politics, about sexuality, about the relationship of science to faith, about, about race, about all kinds of different issues. These are actually opportunities for us to grow in our spiritual formation, to actually grow in our discipleship, and to bear witness to something God does in us and in the world and for the world. So conflict has become something that I'm leaning into. I'm naturally a conflict-averse person. Anybody else like me out there? Okay, a few of you. I'm a middle child. So you get the idea, you know, you middle child children out there, you know what I'm talking about. Always balancing, don't like conflict that much. And so I've been running into a lot of other people who also have been learning how to deal with conflict. Sometimes conflict resolution work, sometimes conflict mediation work. And, and then I ran into a guy, really interesting young pastor from the San Francisco Bay Area who has started a ministry called the Global Immersion project. And it's his belief, similar to what we do, that conflict is an opportunity for us actually to experience something really powerful, if we're willing to be open to it happening. And so his whole project is around bringing people together in communities who normally are at odds with each other. Like, get this, chief of police for like Oakland, uh, California Police Department, gang members, and pastors, and taking them on a road trip somewhere in the world where there's another conflict different than their conflict, so they can experience how those people are dealing with their conflict. So he takes several chief of polices from police departments in California, several gang members, and several pastors, all of whom, by the way, are Christians, gang members too, active. And he brings them to places like Israel-Palestine, and they, they experience together these moments in the desert and in these communities where there's this incredible conflict and use that opportunity as a way to see what God can do in their own conflicts, in their own lives. It's just a bizarre kind of project. Isn't that crazy? So I was talking with him, and he told me, he has a, a lot of interactions in Washington, D.C., and recently a member of his church who happens to be the head of Lady Gaga's foundation called Born This Way, a foundation that works throughout the world to try to help spread kindness and hope for young people. 
the United Nations has decided to invest, was looking into, and I think they did decide to invest $25 million with the Lady Gaga Born This Way Foundation to teach kindness throughout the world. And what this friend of mine said to me was, isn't it it amazing to you that the United Nations, when it thinks of teaching kindness to the world, doesn't come to the church, but goes to Lady Gaga? There's something wrong, he said. (laughs) When the first place they think of going is not the church to teach kindness. And I was just kind of stunned when he told me that story. So I have this story that I just told you in the back of my mind as I was listening deeply to this passage, this story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And I invite you to listen to me with me to this story. And in a couple minutes, we'll open it up in the Bible and look at some details. This is a story from, from Matthew's Gospel. After this, Jesus got into a boat, crossed the sea, and came to his own town. And suddenly there were some people carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, stand up and walk? But in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. And he got up and went to his home. And when the crowd saw this, They were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. And as Jesus walked along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he called to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed Jesus. And as he sat at dinner in the house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were eating, sitting with Jesus and his disciples. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And then the disciples of John came to Jesus and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often and your disciples do not fast? And he said to them, The wedding guests 
cannot mourn while the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from the cloak and a greater tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins will burst, the wine will be spilled, and the wineskins will be destroyed. No, fresh new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And as after he had said this, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and saw her and said to her, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly she was made well. And when he came to the house of the synagogue leader, he saw the flute players in the crowds making a commotion. And he said to them, Go outside, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when they had been put outside, Jesus went in, took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout all the region. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 9. Thanks be to God. So I have a confession to make about this story about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, a friend of mine in Holland, where I live, asked me to preach for him, and he was going to be on vacation, and they were doing this series of sermons on the questions that people asked Jesus, and this was, part of this was the text for the Sunday that he was going to be gone, and he said, would you please preach about that, and it was the question about fasting, why do we and the disciples of the Pharisees fast so often, and Jesus' disciples, you don't fast at all. And so I said, sure, that I would do it. And then I, then I started digging into the passage, and, and the passage just kind of swallowed me up. Um, the few verses he had given me became more verses, and then more verses. And suddenly I began to look at that whole chapter, chapter 9, 1 through 26 at least, is what we're going to look at this morning. And I keep seeing how alive and active this passage of Scripture, this word from God is for me. And I want, I want to talk to you about four ways in which this passage is alive and active for me. And one of those ways is that the passage challenges me, it confronts me, it gets in my face about a couple things, and I'm not real happy about that. Secondly, this passage corrects me, it mends me, it heals something in me. And I like that. Thirdly, it gives me something to do. And that's at least the easiest thing for me. I can go away and actually do something from this passage. 
And finally, it gives me something really big about God to carry with me, bigger than those study Bibles you graduates got today. So, confronts, corrects, gives me something to do, and something big about God to carry with me. So you can know when I'm finished, when I get to the fourth point. First of all, this passage challenges me deeply. It confronts me. It gets in my face. Did you notice the people that come to challenge Jesus in this passage? If you didn't, I'm going to name them for you. In verse 3, it's the scribes who come to really question Jesus. In verse 11, it's the Pharisees who ask a straightforward question to Jesus, confronting him. And then in verse 14, it's the disciples of John that come to Jesus and really push back on what he's doing. Scribes, the Pharisees, and the disciples of John all pushing back on Jesus, providing resistance to what God is at work doing in Jesus Christ. How does that confront me? Well, after I started just taking this passage in, I I just began to realize that, you know, I really love seeing myself in Jesus in the stories. Everywhere I go, Jesus is this radical. Yeah, I'm like Jesus. He's hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. He's got the right answer. And I don't want to see myself as a scribe, as a Pharisee, or a disciple of John. But let's just pull back a little bit and think about who these groups were. Scribes, they're the experts in the scriptures. They're the ones who know the Bible inside and out. They're the ones in any meeting who are able to say to you, well, here's a verse of scripture that speaks about this. I don't know what this scripture say. I think I know. And they're pulling out their Bibles all the time. I'm kind of like that. I was trained in Hebrew and Greek. (laughs) I was trained in exegetical methods. I want to do that kind of stuff. I'm like a scribe. Who are the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were those people who really wanted to keep the boundaries of the covenant community clear. Here's how you live the Christian life and how you don't live the Christian life. They didn't talk about the Christian life, of course. It was the life of God's people. What was kosher? What was, what was righteous? Sadiq. To be a tzaddik, righteous person, someone who kept the law and the ceremonial laws. You wouldn't be anywhere near a tax collector or a sinner who were proven to be supporting the Roman Empire, empire by collecting taxes from your own people or supporting them as prostitutes, as, as we think that references to. So, to be a Pharisee was to keep the boundaries clean. So all the parents of high school students who are heading off to college are thinking right now with their Pharisee brain. I hope our kids, when they get to college, find a Christian group right away. We're all thinking when our kids go off to college, we don't want our kids heading off to the tax collectors and sinners meetings on campus. Am I right? There's a Pharisee brain in me. Recently, two of the houses on my street went up for sale. 
Actually, they haven't even gone up for sale. I know they're going up for sale in August because the people have told me. And I just caught myself thinking this week, you know, I wonder who's going to move in there. It's going to be somebody, you know, is just going to let their dogs run all over the place and have parties all night. I have a dog myself, so. It's that Pharisee in me that wants to have the clear boundaries to be safe, not risk possibly associating with something unrighteous. How about the disciples of John? Who of all of the people mentioned in this story should know what Jesus is about? John the Baptist is the only one who can identify Jesus and baptizes him and sees the Spirit come upon him and says about Jesus that he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit in his ministry. John the Baptist had a front row seat to what God was doing in Jesus Christ. And his disciples are questioning. Doesn't that scare you a little bit? Confront you a little bit? All of us who are in the church being trained every day in and out in our faith. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But I'm confronted in these three groups of people with the potential I have in myself to risk, to resist what God is doing. I don't like to have to think about that. I wish I could just go on smoothly my merry way, but this passage confronts me. I have a lot of the Pharisee scribe and the disciple of John in me. But, but this passage also corrects me and gently heals me. It mends things in me. Do you notice that all along the way, as people object to Jesus, push back on Jesus, Jesus simply redefines himself in their eyes. He keeps saying what he's come to do. He keeps living his, his, his mission out quietly and gently, and at every point of resistance, he doesn't slam back or turn his head in disgust and reject people, but he simply answers and engages them. Which is easier, to to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? Well, I guess it's the sins is a forgiven thing because you can't really see that. And then he heals this man in the midst of it. And when he has pushed back about mourning, uh, about, about the, the fellowship with sinners and tax collectors, he talks about being a physician with those who need healing. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. The well, those who are well don't need a physician. Go and learn something. We're going to get to that in a minute. But even remark, more remarkably to me are the words of Jesus that ring out so powerfully in these Stories, the one at the beginning and the one near the end of what I recited to you. I don't know if you caught this. Twice Jesus says, take heart or have courage. 
The first time he says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. That's right near the beginning in verse 2. And then to the woman who comes up behind to touch him in verse 22, Jesus says, take heart, your faith has made you well, has healed you, has saved you. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart. Your faith has made you well. Jesus comes continually steers the discussion and the focus back to these central truths. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you whole. Take heart. Take courage. So we're, while we're chasing these rabbit trails of issues about forgiveness and fellowship with sinners and fasting, Jesus is bringing us back to these central anchoring points of our faith. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well and whole. Even faith like a mustard seed, for that's the kind of faith this woman has, isn't it? Twelve years of hemorrhaging. She's gone to all the doctors and the healing healers by now. And this is the last, last thing she has to do, to come up behind Jesus, grab the little tab of his cloak, possibly that little prayer tassel, some people think, on the edge of a, of, of a Jewish um, walking cloak. To just touch it is all I need. That's faith like a mustard seed. So I'm gently corrected in this passage, brought back, brought back to these central flowing forces of the kingdom that our sins are forgiven and that our faith makes us well. It's not about earning our righteousness by fasting or by keeping ourselves pure from the, the possible tainting of the world. It's not by trying to find in the scriptures the right way to say how forgiveness happens. But actually God is in Christ bringing forgiveness. God is in Christ making us whole. Faith connects us to that power. Martin Luther, in commenting about this passage, says the kingdom of God is simply the sentence. Your sins are forgiven. Here there are no works, no merits, no commandments or law, but only pure grace and kindliness. If we want the kingdom of Christ to multiply, don't tell people to go and do this or that. When you propose works to me, Luther says, you're not moved by the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit goes around leading me, first of all, to the grace of Christ. And then we can talk about what we need to do. So I'm challenged and I'm corrected in this passage. And then in this passage... I'm given something to do. You probably heard it right in the middle of the passage. Go and learn what this means. That's a pretty straightforward command of Jesus, right? Go and learn what this means. It's just like all these other places in the Bible where Jesus clearly tells us things to do and we often just set it aside and, well, that must have been for the first century, not 
for us, like the loving your enemies thing and pray for those who hate you. That must be that must have been for the first century now. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's a pretty clear bit of inst- uh, of a command, right? Go and learn. Go and learn what it means. Now, admittedly, Jesus doesn't say, here's the four ways to do that. That would have been nice, by the way, Jesus. But it's, it, it's a clearly a command. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. It's a quote, by the way, too, from the prophet Hosea, chapter 6, similar place where God's talking about how his people have have, have really misaligned their lives around their own way of worshiping and sacrificing and missing the heart of God, which is about mercy and steadfast love. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Really, Jesus is giving us a guiding principle to go put into practice in the next coming week. Here's the guiding principle. God desires mercy. God desires mercy. Not sacrifice. So as you go and learn in this week, maybe the first place you need to learn that is in your own life. As you set out on this week this week, begin the week trusting that God's not really desiring that this whole week you set about sacrificing all kinds of things. That's what he wants. He wants you to sacrifice. Apparently not. God desires mercy. So where in your life do you need mercy? Do you need to give yourself mercy or let mercy just pour into your life because you've been so hard on yourself? Where in your family or your marriage does mercy simply need to flow and not sacrifice? Where in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace can mercy flow? Go and learn. Go and experiment. Go and find out how God desires mercy. Maybe all you need to do this week is go out there and see where you can spot this happening, that God desires mercy. To try and understand what the loving kindness of God is, to believe that God loves and cherishes us each day of the week is what we can start this week with. God desires mercy. To understand that in God, Christ, in Christ, God is making all things new, reconciling all things to himself. God has filled the world, as psalmist says, with his unfailing love. God desires mercy. And so go out this week to try to see it. In the work that I do, as I mentioned at the beginning, we try to bring people together who normally disagree about things and sometimes disagree pretty, pretty strenuously and hard about issues to bring them together and then over 10 weeks go through this process of listening to each other and engaging this issue. But all along the way, what does it mean to love? What does love look like when I really disagree with somebody else? I've done my Bible studies. I've done my thinking and reflecting and praying. and I've just gone to a different place 
how do I stay connected and love that person? What does love look like? A couple months ago, I was at a church that's been using our, our curriculum, and I talked to a woman who had gone through this group, and at the end, she told this story about how in her life, her marriage had fallen apart after 30 years. Her husband had left her and in the process went off to live a different sort of life somewhere across the country and left her with his parents who were now dying and they needed help with hospice care and nursing care and their son who had left her was gone and now nowhere to be found. So she kept asking herself, what what does love really look like? What does mercy look like in this situation? And so she she reached out to take care of them and arranged hospice and walked down the path of dying with her ex-husband's mother and then with, or first with the father and then the mother was dying and and the mother at one point said to her, okay, now, this doesn't make any sense to me. Our son treated you so poorly and left you and just has not done anything. Why are you doing this when you've suffered so much? And her answer was simply this. I couldn't stop asking the question, what does love look like? What would love look like to these people? And this is what I came up with. Go and learn what it means that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Okay, the last thing is a big idea to take with you as you leave to go wherever you are going. Michigan Tech, Notre Dame, Norwood, uh, Michigan State even. I heard the, uh, the the grumbling about that. Amazing. There are two points in this story where uh, the same phrase happens, and it's really unique. One happens when Jesus sees Matthew, and he just says to him, "Follow me." And Luke or Matthew tells us that Matthew got up and followed Jesus. So all it says, "Got up and followed." And then did you catch this? When Jesus has been teaching and talking with them about fasting, suddenly the, 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 the synagogue leader comes in and kneels before Jesus and says, my daughter has died, this horrible situation. Just come and lay your hand on her and she lived. And then Matthew says, Jesus got up and followed him. You, you know that this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus gets up to follow somebody else? Lots of places where people follow Jesus. This is the only time where Jesus gets up and follows somebody else. Why is that? Well, what Jesus does after this is a big clue. Jesus moves to this place of incredible tragedy, tragedy and hopelessness. The death of a child that all of us who are parents just just fear. It's horrible situation. He moves there and he brings life. The girl gets up. Everywhere in this passage, people are getting up, rising up. It's telegraphing for us, actually, the resurrection of Jesus that happens at the end of the book, the end of the gospel. She's raised to life. 
Jesus, you see, is ready to move at any moment towards those who are gripped by hopelessness and death and bring life. That's what God is doing in Jesus. That what, that's what God has been doing from the beginning, moving to bring life. And in Christ, powerfully moving over and over again to bring life. In Christ, God is making all things new. God is reconciling all things to himself. God is on the move always in Jesus to bring life. That's the big idea that we can take with us everywhere. God comes to bring life. He gave his life to bring life. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was raised to life to give us hope. God is relentlessly moving to bring life. That's the big idea. We can take heart, as Jesus says twice in this passage. For forgiveness is real, for faith makes us whole, because God in Christ is bringing life. And so you can take that to the campus of Michigan Tech or Notre Dame or just down the road in Norfolk or Michigan State. Other places we go this week, God is at work. God who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. God whose name is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the big idea that gives us courage. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. May your word, O oh God, sink into our hearts, planted deeply by your spirits, that we may bear fruit throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.